Various subgroups of people in our world exist who have unique concerns that distinguish them. For instance, we have illegal immigrants that live every day fearful that they will be deported. Just something that they live with. It's a concern that defines them as American citizens. That's not a fear that we face every day, but it is a reality that shapes the illegal immigrant's self-identity. Or take North American football players. They live with the concern about concussions. Now, any one of us could suffer a concussion any number of ways. It's something we recognize, but it's not a reality that really affects us. Not a concern that is there all the time. For football players, it is. Not that they all face it, but they have to think about it. And their subculture is directed by that concern. Another example, the task of ambassadors to represent their homeland on foreign soil is a self-defining concern. I may travel to Bulgaria as a tourist, and I'm thankful that I'm an American citizen, and I think about that as I'm touring, and I compare it with my world, but I really don't think that much about representing my country as such. Where an ambassador, every moment of their lives, as they serve in various countries, that's always a concern. It's a self-defining concern. They carry a weight of responsibility that, that distinguishes them as a subgroup. As the followers of Jesus Christ, we also have a unique self-defining concern that is integral to our identity. There's a number of them. But I want to focus on one today. As Christians, we are defined as a people by persecution. The reality of persecution orients who we are. There is a systematic, Satan-inspired, worldwide effort to harm Christians and extinguish the light of the Gospel. Bruce Thornton, research fellow at the Stanford University's Hoover Institute, claims that a Christian is martyred in our world every five minutes. He suggests that there are at least 100,000 Christians, perhaps as much as 200,000, who are right now being assaulted in some way because of their faith in Jesus Christ. German Chancellor... Angela Merkel recently claimed this, and I quote, Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world. And against the thoughts of many, indeed what seems to be presented mostly in our media, this is not the work of a few radicalized jihadists. This is the routine work of governments and common citizens, sometimes in mobs, sometimes in concerted effort that works under the scenes. These are real, normal people in various places in this world that oppose Christianity. Now what we need to recognize as a communion, as a community of faith, we need to recognize that this global reality of persecution is not ancillary to who we are. 
It is a reality that defines us and shapes us as God's people. To be a Christian is to identify with a Savior who suffered unjustly. We are here to magnify the name of Jesus Christ. He died. He died as a martyr. He laid down His life having done only what was good, but suffering for it. To be a Christian then is to identify with a people who have been called out of the world and are by virtue of their redemption often hated by this world. We must recognize that persecution is not an accident. We are not having a bad stretch of international diplomacy that might someday be resolved. Rather, it is to this that we as a communion are called. To suffer for Christ. Jesus taught us this when He said, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Me, they will persecute you. The Apostle Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He said again, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. In fact, in this book we find already the Apostle Peter striking on this note as he's in a conversation with slaves, but he says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Now, Peter's readers are facing persecution. We've talked about this at length in our series through the book. It's been laced here and there through the instructions to this point. In some sense, it's somewhat in the backdrop of the book. But, as he's talked to specific individual groups, such as slaves, as we've just considered here, it continues to rise to the surface. These people were facing persecution. They were being opposed for their faith, for doing what was right. Now, at chapter 3 and verse 13, if you'll make your way there as we come to where we left off last week, as we come to 3 and verse 13, Peter will focus more pointedly on the self-defining reality of persecution and the injustice of suffering abuse for doing what is good. Let's get a running head start into it as we remember the conversation from last week, verses 8-12. through 12. Peter calls his readers to live out the new life they have, they, that they have received as believers from Christ. They are to display their redemption in the way that they live out their everyday lives. Having said that in verses 8-12, through 12, there's an almost seamless transition now into a section of the book at verse 3 and verse 13 that will follow through really pretty much to the end of the book in some respects where the focus now is on their suffering and how they deal with persecution. So we're dealing with something of an introductory uh, paragraph here on that theme, although the theme has obviously worked its way in already to this point. But following this direction to live a godly life 
in response to the salvation that we have in Christ, following directly on that, Peter now segues into the theme of suffering. Where he says in verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? What is he saying? In light of verses 8-12, through 12, I think the connection is, who's going to harm you if you zealously pursue the kind of virtues that I've just been describing? The world despises hypocrites. Even though they are not part of a communion of faith, perhaps, they, they, they despise hypocrites. But you, verse 8, you are going to not be a hypocrite, but you're going to be united in mind with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're going to display sympathy. You're going to display brotherly love to one another. You're going to have tender-hearted compassion and humility toward one another. Who's going to oppose that? Who's going to persecute such a person? When unbelievers wrong you, what you're going to do is not retaliate. In fact, rather than retaliating as so many do, you actually are going to bless them. You're going to speak words of grace and blessing to them. Who's going to persecute such a person? And when they hurl abusive speech at you, you will not revile in return. In fact, you will speak these words of blessing. Your speech will be indeed pure and it will be honest. And you will pour out your life in doing good and seeking peace. I believe the right interpretation of all this as it comes to verse 13, though there would be some difference, I believe that the interpretation here is now what on earth is going to harm you if you live like that? Who's going who's to hit you? Who's going to mind a person who lives like that? Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for this good? For his part, in fact, verse 12, God is favorably oriented to such people, watching out for them. However, suffering for righteousness is a reality in this fallen world. It is a reality for Christians. Peter knows it. He's been talking about it. And so he says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer, for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Indeed, they were suffering for righteousness' sake. They all knew it. But if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. I think here that the harm mentioned in verse 13 as potential is the suffering realized in verse 14. I don't think we have an eschatological idea, a future event idea here. But rather the harm mentioned in verse 13 is the suffering in this life that's realized in verse 14. So theoretically, people are not going to seek out virtuous citizens and abuse them, however it happens. In the cosmic battle between the risen Christ and the powers of darkness, unbelievers may do this very thing. Inflict abuse upon those who are seeking to live their lives righteously. It's not a bad day. It's the way it is. It's the reality of this cosmic battle. It's not politics. It's not governments. It's not even competing religions ultimately. It's this cosmic battle against the will of God. You've embraced it, you've trusted it, you're going to get hit. 
This is reality for the followers of Christ. When we honor Jesus, when we take a stand for Him, people may not always react well. And Peter now offers here, at this preliminary stage in this pointed discussion about persecution, four lines of counsel. Four words of encouragement for us to consider. The first is this, know this. It's something to know, something to realize. Know this, God will bless those who suffer for doing good. As he says in verse 14, if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. This is a word of assurance that should fill us with zeal and courage to stand for Christ. This is none other than the promise of Jesus to His church. You suffer for doing good, and I will pour out My grace upon you. You can count on it. We're not told what the blessing is, but the prospect should be enough to inspire us to action. Know this. Suffering for Christ is never loss. It is always gain. And it can be nothing else. Jesus taught us this, did He not? When, um, <coughs> well, if I find Jesus' words here. There we go. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus told us this. This is how it will be. I think as Christians we need to come to terms with it. Even in our setting of peace and security on some level, there is persecution according to the definition of Scripture in our lives as well. A reviling, an abuse, a dismissal, a hatred that we face. Young people, some of you are in a public school setting. Some of you maybe in a homeschool co-op with peers. Maybe in the neighborhood as well with young people that do not stand for Christ. Let me say to you, we're not going to pretend anything otherwise. If you take a stand for Christ with young people who do not honor Him as Lord, you will suffer. There will be consequences. Now if you take no stand and you hide your identity with Christ, you might be able to get away with that and without suffering that difficulty. But if you take a position for Jesus among unbelieving young people, you will pay a price. Jesus is teaching us this. He's not, not just saying, oh, I have to admit that that'll probably be the case. He's telling us to expect it. This is how life works. And I think the question is for you then, young people, will you choose the praise of man or the blessing of Christ? Here's the offer. You can have the praise of man or God promises to bless you if you if you suffer for doing right will you choose the blessing of the world or the blessing of jesus in your life for all of us the adults at work in the neighborhood among peers and extended family are we willing to stand for the truth and to proclaim jesus christ one strong motivation that Peter lays out here is if we suffer for doing right or believing or speaking for what is right, we will receive God's blessing upon our lives. 
God is saying to us, I will orient myself to you so that my ears are open to your prayers. My eyes will be upon you, verse 12, and I will pour out my blessing upon you as you suffer with Christ. Suffering for righteousness unleashes the blessing of God upon us. If we ever truly grasp the significance of this promise as Jesus taught us in Matthew 5, just quoted earlier, if we get the point, how will we respond? We will rejoice. We will be glad, Jesus says. If you really see it for what it is, you will rejoice. You will line up and identify with God, and that is a blessing. If we ever grasp this truth, we will never pity our brothers and sisters in Christ who suffer violence for His name. We will rejoice with them through tears that they have been chosen to share in Christ's sufferings in a unique way. Persecution identifies us, but as it identifies us, it's not this horrible, terrible, very bad day. It's who we are. And we rejoice in it. Now, gladness in the face of persecution is not the first response that comes to my mind when I think of facing persecution. Fear comes to my mind. Isn't that the the natural response, what we think of? And that leads to the next line of instruction. So first, know that persecution results in God's blessing upon our lives and our futures. Secondly, do not fear man, but revere Christ. Don't fear man, but revere Christ. Verse 14. If we should suffer, we're blessed first. Secondly, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. He's giving needed instruction to real live suffering Christians and says, don't be afraid. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Do not fear. Let's look at the negative first of all in that second point. Do not fear man. Fear and trouble are essentially synonymous here, I think. There's going to well up in your soul a natural fear of man when you are ridiculed, reviled, arrested, or tortured. Of course, but don't give in to that fear. We are not to be shaken with inner turmoil by such opposition. We are not to fear those who persecute us. This also is our culture. This also is our self-identity. To not fear in the face of such intimidation. Now how is that possible? It's not possible through mental gymnastics. It is possible only as we apply Peter's next line of instruction here under this point. The reverse, do not fear man, but revere Christ. Verse 15, but rather than fearing people who intimidate you, in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. The but marks a direct contrast to the fear of man. So instead of fearing man, letting people intimidate us, we should, and here's literally, I I prefer it was translated set apart, that's the make holy idea, to distinguish, to set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. little sideline here for those that like to keep score on these things, but uh, some Bible teachers lift this verse out of context 
And they argue that the key to the Christian life is to make Jesus Lord at some definitive point after one's salvation. And this verse plays prominently in that thinking. Make Christ Lord. Set Him apart as Lord. He's talking to believers. So this is a key to our sanctification to make Jesus Lord somewhere down the line. Well, I ask you just a simple question. Is that the context? Is that the context we're dealing with here of how to pursue sanctification, how to enter into this second experience of blessing in the Christian life? I mean, clearly, as you read this, sanctifying Christ as Lord, setting Him apart in our hearts is the opposite of fearing man. That's the context. So this is not a call to some spiritual decision. It's a call to replace cowering before man as Lord with setting Christ apart as Lord in our hearts. That's how the text reads. And I think we have to be careful not to turn it into something that it's not. You will naturally fear the people who intimidate you. In place of that fear... Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. A reverence for Christ will overcome the fear of man. It's always that way. Whether you're under persecution or not, how I revere Christ directly affects how I respond to the people that are around me, whether it's caving into peer pressure or facing torture for Christ. It's what's in my heart that's the issue. And this is the beauty for the persecuted church. It's not merely about how I can get my mind around this and psychologically prepare myself to not be intimidated by intimidating people. But it's rather that the battle's not on the outside, it's on the inside. To set apart Christ as Lord, to revere Him as Lord, to submit to Him as the One who rules my life, that is what fights the fear of man, even in the face of torture. What experience do i have with torture none but i'm taking verse 15 with me if i ever get there the answer is going to be to set christ apart as lord in my heart to love him and revere him above any intimidation that man can throw at me the eyes of the lord are on the righteous his ears are open to their prayers and could i turn verse 12 the other way and his face is for those who do good that's where I concentrate in the face of suffering. My relationship with Christ. And when we do this, while it's not a separate imperative in the Greek text, I think we can draw it out as a separate point. Thirdly, we are then to be prepared to defend our faith. So we're going to know that persecution is blessing. We're not going to fear man, but rather revere God. And thirdly, we're going to be prepared to defend our faith. Verse 15. As we set Christ apart as Lord in our lives, in opposition to the fear of man, we should always, verse 15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. Our faith in the good news of Jesus crucified and risen is not merely experiential, although it is that. But our faith is based exclusively It is not based exclusively on what has happened to us, but although something has happened to us, we've been born again, our faith is based on historical facts. And we are to be prepared to describe the reality of that truth. To be able to articulate that truth in defense, 
not fearing people, running away from the truth, but standing for it and announcing it. And saying, here it is. I can articulate it, I can explain it, and I can support it. Now we do not need to have an answer for every critic, and this is not a call for all of us to earn a PhD in apologetics. But we should be able to clearly articulate the Gospel. And we work hard at that as a church, as people come to join into our membership, and as we work with our young people at at this project. It is amazing to me how often adults come into our church and cannot articulate the Gospel very well at all. We should be able to articulate the Gospel well, well enough at least that someone could truly come to Christ as Savior through our presentation. And we should be able to defend why it is that we believe these ideas. Why it is that we're trusting in them. So this rational explanation of our beliefs is to be articulated then to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That might be before a magistrate or a governor. Most often it's just going to be before common people. They ask us of the hope. That hope idea there, verse 15, is really synonymous with our salvation. But it's hope in the sense of looking to the future that Christ has secured for us. People are going to ask you about that hope. Now sometimes they're going to ask you directly. Sometimes they're going to ask you indirectly. And most often it seems they ask without knowing that they're asking. And often not only do they miss the point that they're asking, we miss the point that they're asking. We need to learn to discern that, that people say things to us because we're weird. We do things differently. We don't talk a certain way. We don't think a certain way. There's things we don't do and things we do do that are just strange to them, and they're really asking. They ask you about some small thing in your life that you do. Look to the bigger picture and learn to draw it back to the Gospel and say, this is what informs me. This is what moves my life. This is what I trust as historical reality. And this is the transforming power in my life. Can you articulate that? You can hang your head and say, I'm not that kind of person. I don't think like that. I get all confused. Do you watch television? Do you get on the internet? Take a little small slice of that time and sit down and write it out. Just write it out and think through it. I mean, come on, we can do this. If you're in that spot and saying, I, I just I can't do this, you've got to ask some questions, but assuming that you know Christ is your Savior, can we not think through a simple plan that articulates ably and faithfully what we're trusting in for our salvation and why we trust in it? We use often the fourfold plan here. Who is God? Who am I? Who is Jesus? What did He do? And what must I do? There may be some other way that you lay it out, but sit down with it for a while, study it, learn it, be prepared. This is a call from God for all of us, to all of us, to be prepared. So let's do that. Be ready always to give a defense. 
to articulate in clear terms what we're trusting in. Now we're to do this, he adds there at the end of verse 15, with gentleness and respect. We're not to be argumentative, needlessly offensive, brash, disrespectful, or critical. There is a kind of witness for Christ that is essentially arrogant bullying. It's to be none of that. There is no place for such speech in our witness for Christ. We are to employ gentle, gracious language. The word respect here is really the Greek word fear. And in the context of 1 Peter, uh, many would argue is always a reference to fear of God. Uh, Whether we take it that way or not, uh, many would say that's more consistent with the idea so that we're to have respect for God as we're witnessing faithfully to people with uh, reverence or with uh, graciousness rather. Well, either way, we obviously are to have respect for people as well as the ESV takes it here. But simply said, we're to speak winsomely. We're to speak faithfully for Christ. So, persecution. I know I will be blessed as I suffer for doing what's right. I am not to fear man but reverence Christ. Secondly, I'm to be prepared to defend my faith. And finally, to live above reproach. How often can our lives get in the way of all that God wants to do even through our suffering? Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Having a good conscience, the sense of God's approval that comes as we live righteously. Shame. This may be on a later day when they realize that they're accusations against you are baseless and they are then shamed by their earlier actions against you. Chapter 2 and verse 12. This may be on the day they stand before Christ and realize that raging against you was a raging against Christ and the truth of God. Uh, Either way, their persecuting ways will never be the final word. Having a good conscience so that they are, those who slander you are put to shame in some sense. God will have the final word. Christ will gain glory for His name. He will reward His servants who suffer for His sake. So Jesus will have the last word, whether in this life, as He conquers a person's heart, or in the next, as a person stands before Him in judgment. He will reward the blasphemers with the consequences of their blasphemy, eternal separation from Him. That will be the last word. A good conscience then, we are to have and to nurture in the midst of our suffering. And that is qualified now in verse 17. For it is better, verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. If we suffer as Christians for doing wrong, we have just ourselves to blame. If we suffer for doing wrong, we should not think that we're being persecuted as Christians. No, we're just suffering the natural consequences of wrongdoing. But it may be the will of God that we share the sufferings of Christ and are abused for doing what is right. Mistreated because we're doing right. That may be God's will. And in that case, the answer is not litigation. The answer is not retaliation. I'm not saying a litigation is always wrong. 
But for the most part, worldwide, generally speaking, that is not the answer. The answer is not retaliation. The answer is not withdrawal. The answer is to acknowledge that God has sovereignly chosen that we suffer for Him and that this is a high honor. As we read of the apostles in Acts 8, verse 41, when the disciples faced persecution and were ordered by the highest court in Israel never to preach again in the name of Christ, they said this, we read this, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Where are those people? Where are those Christians that rejoice that they're counted worthy to suffer for Christ? Are they among us? Are we those people? Should we face such difficult persecution from our world would we gather as a church and rejoice that we were so counted worthy? So we're instructed in this passage to recognize that a distinguishing concern of Christianity, a self-identifying reality, is our subjection as a communion to worldwide persecution. This is who we are. Our self-consciousness must be formed by the reality that there is a systematic, Satan-inspired, worldwide effort to harm Christians and extinguish the light of the Gospel. Let that pour over you. Let that filter in. That's our reality. That's who we are. Not a mistake. It's not something we hope goes away. This is the life to which we were called. We then need to see the big picture of the worldwide church of Jesus Christ. There are stories that are pouring out of the nations. Most of them are left alone by the media in our culture. I've done some reading here uh, recently that much of it, it goes untranslated. We don't put people on it to translate it into English. The accounts that are coming out many times are boastful accounts. Here's how we've harmed Christians. But it's left untranslated and we don't even learn about it. What is our natural reaction to that reality? Well, the Spirit counsels us here in this passage in a way that runs counter to our natural responses. Our natural response is that in such situations, we're being beat up, we're cursed. The fear of man, to question God not to draw close to Christ, to adjust the faith to our detractors rather than stand for it in reasoned defense, to mimic the world's ways rather than to live morally above reproach. This is all our natural response to the pressures that are placed upon us as the followers of Christ. But let's think of it again. The right view of persecution is to see it as a blessing, as an opportunity to suffer for Christ, for His glory, and for our blessing. The right view of persecution is to say, I will not fear man, but in the place of that, I will revere Jesus as Lord. The right answer is to defend our faith and to live above reproach so that we take away any legitimate opposition. We need this council. This church needs this council. We face more persecution than we probably recognize 
in this culture and time. But we also are being prepared. And I think in light of this that we must each answer the question, have you identified with the crucified, despised, and suffering Lamb of God who laid down His life for your soul? Have you identified with that Savior? Have you stood before witnesses and followed this despised Savior in the waters of baptism? Have you in that way borne testimony to your death to sin in Christ and your identification with Him in this world? Have you joined this initiatory rite that draws attention to the fact I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a follower of the crucified, persecuted Christ. And I am one with the body of faith that is suffering with Him. A willingness to suffer for Christ is not achieved through bravado or self-confidence. Any more than it is squashed through governmental effort or political effort. It is achieved as we set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. That's at the heart of this passage and that's at the heart of the issue. I was helped in this one day by Pastor Benny Costia from Romania who was jailed for his faith in Romania under a communist dictatorship and now lives in a, a freer uh, Romania. But he said he was asked all the time by people wondering, would I stand for Christ? Would my faith be strong enough? And asking him, how did you do it? How do you know if you'll stand for Christ when you're taken off to jail because you're a Christian? His answer has been instructive to me and I'm so thankful for it. I share it again as I have before. But he says, he said it is easy to suffer persecution. It is hard to live for Christ. It's easy to suffer persecution. It's hard to live for Christ. What he meant as he, as he fleshed that out was live for Christ and you will stand under persecution. If you're not living for Christ, you can guarantee you won't. Live for Jesus every day and you will be equipping yourself to die for Him should He call you to do so. Well, we are persecuted for Christ as a church. There are people who abuse and malign and do not like what we stand for, but our persecution is obviously very minimal in this world as we compare with others. But God's will may change that. I do not expect a lot of persecution in our future in this land as long as Christians continue to accommodate the world and assimilate their thoughts, their priorities, and their pleasures to the world's ways. When we're drinking at the vat of Satan's cream as a culture, as a church, why bother with us? He's got us right where he wants us. But there may well come a day when the remnant that still stands up to the world and proclaims the full counsel of God raises the ire of Satan and our nation 
such that the heat of persecution rises considerably. There are people who guarantee that's coming. I don't know. I can't say that I know. And again, I go back to the earlier point because as long as we keep accommodating the world, we'll be pretty safe from persecution. But it does seem to be getting more and more difficult to stand for Christ and not draw fire in this culture. And who knows what the days ahead may hold and who knows who will stand for Christ. Many are the generations in the Christian church through the ages where such tests have come down upon them. And God, through the pressure of persecution, indicates who really belongs to Him and who does not. Who sanctifies Christ as Lord in their hearts and who's just along for the ride. Where will He take us? I don't know. But the calling is here to recognize who we are and to realize that the heart and the core of it all is to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts all day, all the time, in every area of our lives that we may withstand the opposition of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Christ is Lord. That changes the whole thing. Father, we come before You with thanksgiving. It seems to be largely and almost strangely absent from much that's being written and said and music that's being produced. But we thank You, God, for the reminder today in this service that we stand with the persecuted church of Christ. And I pray, Father, as we continue to sing to that end and as we continue to unite as a body of believers that we will see this as Your will and know that this is part of the plan to rescue a fallen world. Only through the blood of the martyrs will the Gospel ultimately prevail in some places. And Lord, here where we face so little opposition, may we first recognize that the first reason may well be because of the weakness of our voice. But as we also recognize then secondly that that day may come, we come to you not in fear, no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in our faith, but we come knowing that persecution itself comes only by your will. And so in that we rest and pray that whatever may be coming, that you will deepen this church to place her hope and her confidence in Jesus as Lord. For those that have not come to understand who Jesus is and the salvation that is in His blood through His death on the cross and His resurrection power, I pray that you bring them to that message and teach them to live for a cause that people are willing to die for. We live for so many causes that are simply passing away with each day and are meaningless. We grasp vapor. I pray that you teach us to cling to the solid rock of the death and resurrection of Christ and to hold to that, come what may. We pray to this end 
for the glory of your name, and for the joy of your people, through Jesus. Amen. We've heard the word of the Lord. Let's stand and repart, respond in our hearts in silence to the word that's been preached. Church us this morning. We're glad that you're here. Thank you for coming. And uh, we hope to be able to talk with you a little bit after the service, if you'd be gracious to let us do that. 
Um, just off to the right here in the lobby is an information table with lots of different things about our church and ministry. There will be somebody there to talk with you, and, and uh, we, we hope that you will look into that if you're interested, but we're glad you came. Thanks for visiting with us. First Sundays of the summer, we gather as a church for a picnic, and so today, immediately after the service, we're going to meet at Clifton Park, which is Cliff and Nicollet, just a short distance from here. And everyone's invited. If you were unaware that you'd like to come, we'd love it if you would. And we have plenty of food, so you don't need to worry about bringing anything. And we look forward to that time today of interaction together and rejoicing in God's grace in our lives. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, honor, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed.